0: Hi, it's Jill Schlesinger. On this episode of The Pod, we are talking about when you should do certain
1: things. I'm convinced that if everybody in America took each afternoon, scheduled 10 or 15 minute walk outside with someone they liked, talking about something other than work, leaving their phone behind, I actually think you would have a measurable boost in productivity, and I think you would have a measurable boost in job satisfaction and engagement
0: welcome to the Jill on money podcast I'm Jill Schlesinger and this is the program where we bring you some really cool guests and today is no disappointment we've got New York Times bestseller Daniel Pink his book when the scientific secrets of perfect timing is out in paperback it's got such great and usable information about how we are pre-programmed to have different times in the day and different times of the year affect us and impact us and how we can use that knowledge to our advantage I'm not going to talk too much but the interview says it all remember if you have questions about this or suggestions for other guests or a financial question of your own just send us an email ask Jill at Jill dot and now here's our interview with Daniel Pink
1: you're listening to Jill on money with Jill Schlesinger
0: Daniel H Pink, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Uh, so we start every single show with one question. You uh, ready? Uh-huh. What is the best financial decision you've ever made?
1: Marry my wife.
0: Really? Yeah. Why? She come from a lot of money. <laughs> I wish. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, no. Um, uh, actually, one of the things that I found in, in looking at other in other couples is that compatibility and how you think about money is enormously important. Mm-hmm. So my wife is not quite as cheap as I am, but she's pretty cheap. And so we have almost no squabble I don't I can't even remember a squabble we've had about money in 23 years. That's we're kind on, of great. We're on that we're on we're on totally the same page. We live beneath our means. Yeah. We run a business, we believe in low overhead, we save a lot of money, we spend money on important things like experiences and kids' education and that's it.
0: That's kind of fabulous. I, I, I can totally relate to that because as, as somebody who never fights with a spouse about money, when I hear about how much people do fight, it's, incredible. it's, it's weird. It, right. And you're like, wow, that, that's a whole category we don't fight about. Well, what do you fight about?
1: We fight about relatively little. I'm trying to think what we do fight about. What do we fight about? We don't really fight that much. We'll squabble. You know, we'll squabble about, about certain things. About yeah. basic, you know what we'll squabble about? Neatness. Are you neat? No, that's the that's why we squabble. You're
0: a little disheveled. I'm. uh, Are you messy but clean?
1: Yeah, that's it. I'm messy but clean. I got to write that down.
0: Right. So that's a very big point because if you're clean, that's fine. Yeah. Messy is you can deal with, but not clean is bad. Right. You've just uh, written a new book. It's called When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing, and I loved it. Thank you. Let's start by explaining sort of the, the natural cycle of how we as human beings are programmed. So talk about that and how this might have uh, encouraged you to dive deeper into the topic.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean, it, the reason I dove deeper into it was in part for that, for that reason. I was frustrated because I was making all these decisions in my own life and making them in a haphazard way. And while I'm a little bit messy, I'm, I'm pretty anal retentive about decision making. And so I like to make decisions based on evidence. It didn't exist. I looked around and realized there's this incredible body of science out there that gives us clues about how to make these decisions. And so one of the cornerstones of all of this is exactly as you say, there is this pattern of the day that happens inevitably. And, and to simplify it, it there, we, 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 each day we move through a peak, a trough, and a recovery. Peak, trough, recovery. Most of us, about 80% of us, move through in more or less that order. Peak early, trough in the middle, recovery later in the day. People who are night owls, who have what's called an evening chronotype, much more complicated, actually much more interesting people. I'm not one of them. Nor I. Um, But they tend to hit their peak much, 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 much later in the day. And what we know um, from this mountain of research is that our brain power doesn't stay the same throughout the day. It changes. And in each of those periods, our brain power is different. And so finding the right thing to do in each of those segments allows us to do more work and better work.
0: When you started talking about sort of the, the night owl versus the lark, yeah. there was also a third category. Sure. And, and can you talk a little bit about sure. that?
1: Yeah. So, so this is something that was called a chronotype in a field called chronobiology. Uh, and it's Which one... is like
0: you'd like to whip out chronobiology at your next cocktail party, right? Like, let yeah, me tell you about that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, real, it's really simple. Chrono, time, biology, study of life. It's basically scientists who study our, our, our rhythms, essentially. Yep. And um, what, what, what we know is that each of us has different types. So, so we, we talk about morning people and evening people, but, and that's not folklore. That's actually real science. And here's what we know. 15% of us, very strong morning people, larks. About 20% of us, very strong evening people, owls. About two-thirds of us, though, are in the middle, uh, what I call third birds. And third birds, I mean, to oversimplify, you can think of kind of owls and non-owls, really, in in how these patterns go. Most of us go peak trough recovery, but about, you know, a fifth of the the population has very, very different rhythms and very, very different internal schedules.
0: The point of kind of understanding what kind of person you are is to make sure you are working around those normal cycles absolutely. and not putting yourself in a position where you are forced to do something at a time where you may not be, uh, you know, obviously at your optimal cognition and energy and all of that.
1: A- absolutely right. And, and, and what's interesting about that is that there are different kinds of cognition that work differently in each of those periods. So let's take that peak. The key characteristic of the peak, which again, for most of us is earlier in the day, for owls in the evening is that we're high in, vi- in what psychologists call vigilance. Vigilance is just our ability to bat away distractions. And so that makes the peak, the ideal time for doing um, heads-down, focused work, uh, uh, analyzing data, uh, uh, writing a report, those kinds of things that require that kind of intense in- intensity. Now, what's interesting is that the recovery period, which is, which is later in the day for most of us, late in the afternoon, early in the evening, our mood is high, but our vigilance is not. And that makes it a good time for things that require some kind of mental looseness. So iterating new ideas, brainstorming, certain kinds of creative problem solving. And so you should be doing your more kind of looser, creative, iterative stuff in that, in that peak period. And, and, and what we know is that is that time of day matters. In human performance if you if you look at let's take a typical workplace all right and we know something let's talk, let's talk about the statistical concept of variance here for a moment okay variance so you got a workplace and there are a thousand people there and you plot them from bad to good who's bad and who's good right in, in terms of their performance and how do you explain why some people are better at their jobs and some people are not some people are smarter than others some people are more conscientious than others some people work harder. some people have more social advantage whatever But what this research tells us is 20% of the explanation of that variance in performance is time of day. And that's something we can do something about. I can't make myself smarter, but I can actually do the right work at the right time.
0: And so when you look at that, let's just say someone's listening and they have got a team of 50 people, okay? And what is the way to take that knowledge and structure a date potentially differently?
1: Yeah, so it's a, great, it's a great question. I think what's interesting about this is while we have general patterns, there is considerable individual variation. So a lot of the things that you see in like life hacking sites, everybody should get up at 4.30 in the morning, is nonsense. It, it doesn't work that way. Mm. Um, and, and so each individual collection of people is gonna be a little bit different. But what I would do, let's say you got 50 people, I actually would wanna know their chronotype. I would wanna know who are the larks, who are the owls, and who are in between. And it would also depend on what I was doing so let's say I had a um, let's say I was running an accounting firm okay unlikely but let's say I was (laughs) running an accounting firm and I had 30 of my people were were larks okay right Um, or 30 larky at least Um, with those folks right there I would not put them in a staff meeting at nine o'clock in the morning 10 o'clock in the morning 11 o'clock in the morning I would not lard up their calendars with meetings during the morning because I know that that's when they're highest in vigilance and that's when they should be doing their heads-down accounting work you oh. know auditing a financial statement right. or, or doing that kind of thing so I would leave them alone for that if I if I wanted to come up with say uh, let's hey guys let's uh, figure out a way to do um, what's a, a new line of business that we could create I would have that conversation generally later in the day. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I would also see who my owls are, if I have any owls. And for the owls, what I would do is essentially leave them alone and let them tell me when they are at their best. And if that owl wants to do her audit at 9 o'clock in the evening and she's not in her chair at 9.30 in the morning... I'm good with that. Right, just get the work I done. I want her to do the work that w- when she does it. The other thing that I would also do is I would encourage them to not start their day by clearing out their email. Ah. Uh, because that's the kind of th- and, and listen, I'm a sinner here. I I'm, I've been saved, but I but I'm a sinner because I, I'm a <laughs> You're a
0: convert, baby. I'm a
1: writer. And so and I'm more of a lark than an owl, much more of a lark than an owl. Mm-hmm. So for me, I would sometimes come to my office at, you know, 8:30 in the morning and first thing I would do is answer my email okay so it takes me an hour to you know clear out my email and I have this delusion that oh I've cleared the decks my right. sp- head is free okay? right so it's 930 and it's like oh wow I'm kind of hungry now like maybe like, I'll go get a bagel all right then I come back like, there's probably something going on on Twitter all right and then you know four sports highlight reels later it's lunchtime and I haven't done my most important I haven't done my most important work you're writing my writing okay mm. and the thing is as a well you know this mm-hmm. as a Jill, as a writer anytime you sit down to write at that moment the universe begins conspiring for ways to distract you oh yeah and so you want to do it at your at your highest vigilance so I actually changed my way so when I on writing days mm. I go into my office still at 830 because I'm not an insane you know start working at six o'clock in the morning Lark what what you know what I do what I don't answer on my email. I don't mm. even open my email mm. I don't even bring my phone with me into the office I give myself a quota of words and say, during this period of peak vigilance, Dan, you have to crank out these number of words.
0: Wow, that's fascinating.
1: And and then did you do it the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day?
0: I'm really interested in this because I think that there are so many of us who are juggling lots of different tasks that we have to do throughout a day. And so what you're saying is work to your strengths do this task in the morning and this is so weird because like you're saying this and this actually happened to me yesterday so I have to wake up and check email just to make sure I don't have to be on the air right sure. so which is annoying but okay sure. but I, I put it aside I shut down my email and I cranked out like three scripts and two columns and two hours later I was like oh my god I'm done and I took the dogs out for a walk after it was like beyond fabulous
1: that's how. That's how you do it. And and the thing about email, I mean, like let's go back to my accounting firm here. What I might want to do is tell my accountant, my larky accountants. You know what? Check your email. Make sure. An important client hasn't contacted. That's you. right. You know, some some kind of just like basic maintenance and things like that. But you want to do your heads down focused work in your peak. You want to do your iterative work during your recovery, and then this trough period.
0: Yeah, let's talk about that. Oh, what do we
1: do then? It's a terrible time of
0: day. I hate it. Well, I I am the ultra lark because I wake up between four and five. Oh my gosh. Yeah, but sometimes I have to be on the air, so it's okay, different, right? right? right so, right. but but like I, I you know, so I generally wake up between four and five. And I looked at, like, I looked at your little schedule yeah. there, your graph, and I sort of, okay, I know where
1: I am. Yeah, so you're pretty larky.
0: I'm very larky uh-huh. anyway, and it's a long day. So yeah. what do I do in the trough when, when yeah. I'm kind of, like, I can even feel it. Like, in I physically feel that trough. Uh,
1: we all do. Most of us don't acknowledge that, though. And most of us say, oh, well, uh, you know, it's, some of us are like, oh, it, should, it doesn't matter, or, oh. It's a a sign of moral weakness. Yeah,
0: let me power through it. Right. I'm like, oh. nah, no, I'm done with that. Okay. I don't want to
1: power through anything. Powering through is a really bad idea. Mm. All right, we tend to think, and and, and and unfortunately, somehow, especially in our business culture, we've been conditioned to believe that that's how you get more work done. That's how you get better work done. That powering through is also morally virtuous, mm. and it's nonsense. So, what you should be doing during that that um, that that drop period, one. your your work that doesn't require as much brain power and creativity answering your email Uh uh-huh filling out your expense reports, Mm -hmm. doing that kind of mundane stuff that you have to do. The other thing that you should be doing, especially in the Trump, is taking more breaks. There's a whole science of breaks that's been emerging, and what it tells us is exactly that powering through is a bad idea, taking breaks is a good idea. We should be taking more breaks, and we should be taking certain kinds of breaks.
0: And what are those types of breaks?
1: Well, the, the best breaks, and there's some interesting research on this, the best breaks are social rather than solo, which surprised me. Uh, as an introvert. So this is true even for introverts. Uh, the best breaks are, are moving rather than being stationary. The best breaks are outside rather than, than inside. And this is important. The best breaks are fully detached rather than semi-detached. So a break isn't you know, walking around with your nose in your Snapchat feed or having intense conversations about what's going on in the office. It's actually being detached. This gives us a fairly simple recipe. So I'm convinced that if everybody in America took each afternoon, scheduled, a 10 or 15-minute walk outside with someone they liked, talking about something other than work, leaving their phone behind, you would have... I actually think you would have a measurable boost in productivity, and I think you would have a measurable boost in job satisfaction and engagement.
0: You know what's so funny? Let's talk about me for a second. Of course. My
1: My favorite topic. Um,
0: So I got these dogs almost four years ago. Okay. And uh, almost... At the exact same time, I had to stop running just because of an injury, and so I found that walking the dogs Mm -hmm. was the most unbelievable thing because it got me, it made forced me outside. I I don't generally like to talk on the phone while I'm walking the dogs. Sometimes I listen to a podcast, you know, because I'm obsessive. But I came up with good ideas. I thought about things that were work related, non work. It was sort of like my meditative moments, and I found myself so much happier instead of... I used to be like, oh, if I don't run five miles, I suck. But now I feel like I walk every single day. I walk five miles a day with my dogs, generally speaking. Going outside, I think, is
1: huge. The dogs force you to do that. But there's there's an amazing amount of research. It's it's uh, I think it's been overlooked about what being exposed to nature does for us. It... It improves our, our mental and physical health. There's some fascinating research showing uh, in, in urban areas where simply putting in a park or replanting a hollowed out block can actually improve health outcomes within that one mile radius. But, but again, the reigning ethic is power through, don't get up from your desk, eat your tuna fish sandwich on your, at your desk, don't get up, where are you going, don't be a wimp is
0: the tech environment like I was at this young company recently doing yeah. a speaking engagement for them and it's like everyone's all over the place and doing different things at different times and so I felt like an old fart because I was just like look at these kids like uh, is anyone working here that's what I thought inside yeah, yeah, yeah. but now school me man
1: Um there's a, there's another legacy here. So, so, so we're always shaking off legacies of how we think and how we behave. So this powering through thing is, I think, a legacy, weirdly enough, of the Puritans. Even though you have most Americans, myself included, have zero ancestral connection to the Puritans. And yet we have this puritanical view of things, that it's about suffering, it's about persevering, it's about powering through. Um, At the same time, we have this legacy of a different way of work, all right? So let's say that you and I are on an assembly line, Mm -hmm. right? It's 70 years ago. You and I are on on an assembly line, and our job is to turn the same screw the same way over and over again. If one of us leaves to go go walk our dogs, the assembly line is not going to run as well, Mm -hmm. right? But we don't have people doing repetitive physical labor today. we have people using their brains we have people making decisions we have people caring for others and the truth is what you want is the outcome and this idea that being present at certain times makes you better at your job is simply not true in this kind of world but we're sort of we still have that legacy of you and I working on the assembly line and me being um, you know a slacker by disappearing
0: right can you talk a little bit about how the personality traits because the the ocean the openness conscientiousness extroversion agreeableness and neuroticism which I feel like I have all of those maybe at at different points in the day Um, (laughs) so you said that I'm just gonna quote from the book yeah much of the research shows morning people to be pleasant productive folks introverted conscientious agreeable persistent and emotionally stable yeah now, I found that fascinating yeah. as someone who works in the mornings.
1: Yeah. Well, or someone who's a lark. Um, yeah. Yeah. Th- there, are, there are personality differences. And it, let's, let's take the other side of it. So let's talk about owls. Owls are more prone to depression. Owls are more prone to um, uh, other kinds of mental illness. Owls are more prone to addiction. But owls also test higher on both analytic intelligence and creativity. Mm-hmm. And so I think the interesting question there is, which way the arrow points? Is it that people who have mental illness have a difficult time getting up in the morning and going to sleep at night, or does going to sleep late and waking up late increase your chances of having some kind of problem? We don't know that, but there are these personality differences. I think that the the implications for workplaces though, back to my accounting firm, is that if I say the the main criterion at Pink Partners Accounting is that people have their butts in their seat at eight thirty in the morning, I am losing one fifth of the talent pool including the fifth of the talent pool that tests higher on analytic and creative intelligence mm. that's a mistake
0: so what about these places where they want there to be a physical presence of people in the office yeah. and they're trying to balance the needs of people to sort of have their own schedules but there's a team yeah so What's the conclusion for that?
1: That makes, I mean, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I don't think that the ideal is necessarily that, that although there are workplaces like this, uh, there's, there's something, uh, a trend that's been out there for a while called a results-only work environment where people don't have any schedules. They come in whenever they want. And, and, and that, can, that can work in some instances. You know, I, I just think what you have to do is you have to give people the discretion to make those decisions for themselves. And the truth is, is that, people want to be good teammates people care deeply what their peers think of them and so if there's a meeting or a group project you'll come in right because in general most people are responsible and people ha- there's a certain amount of peer pressure that comes from not letting down your teammates and to me it doesn't that's not the problem to me that's not the biggest problem that we should be worrying about if you have someone who says I'm not coming in because I don't want to help my team that's not a chronotype problem that's a hiring problem
0: yeah that that's a personality problem right Uh, let's shift gears and talk about lunch can you talk a little bit about fueling refueling gym time all those like fun parts of the the chronotype
1: right but on lunch we can think of lunch as let's think of this big category of breaks and lunch is just another category of break and what the research tells us is that um, at some level, we have overvalued breakfast and undervalued lunch. Uh, okay, I'll put it. I'll put it in. I'll put it in in, in investing terms. All right, I'm going to short my shares in breakfast, and I'm going long on my shares of lunch. I like that. Lunch, It's like a right? day
0: part kind of uh, spread that it, we're putting it, on. It
1: absolutely, because I, I do think that the that the, if you look at the actual research on breakfast, mm. it is. It doesn't say breakfast is bad. Not at all. It says breakfast might be good.
0: Yeah, and it's not as good as you think it is, probably. Yeah,
1: and, and, it, and it basically says, hey, healthy people eat breakfast, but we don't know whether eating breakfast makes them healthy. It mm. could be that healthy people just like to eat breakfast. Um, and also, some of these studies have been funded by breakfast food companies. Funded and, by Wheaties. <laughs> and so you got to take it with some degree of skepticism. My view, I'm, I'm I'm very agnostic on that. Eat breakfast if you want, don't eat breakfast if you don't want. But lunch because it's it's in the middle of that work day is valuable because it is a break and it actually gives you some of the things that we know effective breaks give you Particularly, first of all physical refueling but second of all if you have lunch with somebody else another social, social interaction, interaction exactly. that's
0: amazing what about gym time like you talk about yeah. like taking walks but is there an optimal time given peak trough recovery that we should be thinking about going should you be like if if peak is where you're really good at those mental yeah. tasks, like real thought process. Should you not be working? Like a lot of people I know, they just like, I work out first thing in the morning because that's the best time to work out. Sure.
1: Um, well, it could be for some people. And, and here's the thing. There, there are a number of different variables here, but what we, there's some good research on this. So what we know is that morning exercise is good for if you have certain kinds of goals. Morning exercise seems to be better for habit formation, mm-hmm. in, in part because you're less likely to get interrupted at seven in the morning than at five in the afternoon. Morning exercise seems to be better for weight loss, although there's a lot of the research is showing that exercise is less imp- less effective for weight loss. Weight loss is really hard.
0: Yeah, it's diet. It's sorry, guys. It, it's it's it's, it's <laughs> diet. Shut, you got to shut it's your also, mouth. It, but it's
1: also it's also just that it's also like we're not prisoners of bi- biology, but we live in a state governed by biology, Mm -hmm. and so people have a set point of weight, fairly narrow band, and they're unlikely to get too far on either side of it, and that's how you are. Blame your DNA. Um, The one thing about morning exercise, which I think is is very effective, though, is this, that exercise, aerobic exercise certainly, some interesting new research showing even strength training, gives us a, a, a mood boost. And and a pretty enduring mood boost, Mm. 10 hours sometimes. And so if you exercise in the morning, you get that mood boost all the way through the day. If you exercise at, say, 6 at night or something like that, you might end up sleeping through some of that mood boost. Now, late afternoon and early evening exercise is better for other things. It's better for avoiding injury. Um, Mm. And I think, this is my guess, uh, I think that's because of changes in body temperature. Our body temperature is highest at that moment, so we're literally more warmed up. It's better for performance. Uh, Lung capacity is higher. Uh, Hand-eye coordination is better. Speed is greater. Hmm. And so there's some interesting research showing that uh, a disproportionate number of world records and speed events were set between 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. local time. That's wild. It's crazy, right? Yeah, it's great. Um, and And then also people report enjoying late afternoon and early evening exercise more.
0: That's just because so, that the hottest people are in the in the gym at that time. Maybe? Could be, could be. Oh,
1: literally the warmest because everybody's body temperature is, is the highest. It could be that you're throwing off the stresses of the day. I, I actually believe, and 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 it's, and it's weird. It's it's a weird thing. Like I never thought about is these changes in body temperature are actually more important than we realize. It changes in body temperature are one of the things that add that aid significantly in falling asleep and in wakefulness and even in certain kinds of physical performance that period when your body temperature is higher does boost you just a little bit it really depends on your goals one is not better than the other and so for me since I'm a lark I actually don't like exercising in the morning because I like doing my work then yeah and then by the end of the day I'm so stressed out and miserable I actually enjoy going for a run at five in the afternoon or mm-hmm. six in the afternoon or something that's like interesting
0: that. I, I am the midday kind of person. Okay. And I think that it has something to do with needing a boost, you know, because I wake up so early. If I finish this interview right now, which, you know, will wrap up and uh, I eat a little something and in an hour and a half, I'll go to the gym. Hmm.
1: That, so about what time of day?
0: Uh, Two.
1: Two, two in sp- the afternoon. And that's about how far? So you woke up at what, five?
0: 4.30 this morning. Oh my, okay. So like one thirty or 2 o'clock. Okay, the so,
1: so, so 4 to... So that's nine hours after you after you've woken up yeah so so for me that would be something like it's interesting so for me it'd be something like I wake up at around 7 if I went to the gym nine hours after I woke up that would be four in the afternoon right so pretty good yeah you know and it's
0: funny because it sometimes it's just as you said it has to be where you can form the habit so for so I think that for many people it's like when are you gonna actually get there to me it's like oh it's this perfect time there's no evening news worries morning's done sure I mean if the market blows up or does something weird in the middle of the day I usually cancel but whatever I think that just being aware of your own body is fascinating to me and that's why I love this book because so much of it felt like yes I could bring that into my life and make a positive change so let us talk about my favorite word in the entire book nappuccino (laughs) by far the best are you a napper I can be because I wake up so early and so there are, you know, it can sort of happen in the mid-afternoon and I've sort of been thinking like, oh, I should be meditating and actually napping feels better. (laughs)
1: Uh, You know what? But but it's interesting you say that because there are a lot of similarities um, in brain function and just in mood between napping and meditation. There really are. Um, Here's what we know about napping. It's pretty good for us. Um, Again, it goes against our puritanical ways. Uh, but the best naps are extremely short, between ten and twenty minutes long. After, that was
0: what amazed me.
1: That surprised me too, because I began this pretty anti-nap, because my own experience napping was unpleasant. Because I would wake up and I would feel like crap, and the and that's what something called sleep inertia, which happens when you nap beyond about twenty minutes. But a ten to twenty minute nap is there's a lot of research on this. It's very restorative. Um, it's it's right in that it's right in that sweet spot less than 10 minutes doesn't do you much good more than 20 gives you sleep inertia right in that 10 to 20 minute window it really just smooths things over and restores a lot of mental acuity restores some physical energy okay so now add in the caffeine part okay so here's so this is something i swear by now i don't do it every day at all but, um, Look at you. You're like, don't judge me. Yeah, I don't yeah, yeah. do it every day. No, I don't do it every day. I, I, <laughs> I, you know, I want to advocate this, but I'm not, I don't want to be like a pusher on the corner, like handing out the drugs here. The, here's what I do. So I have noise-canceling headphones, and so I will set my timer for 25 minutes, put on my noise-canceling headphones. Right before I press go on my 25-minute timer, I will have a cup of coffee, and I just guzzle it. In fact, I will often brew a cup of coffee, put, like, some chunks of ice in it just to cool it off because I'm not enjoying the coffee. (laughs) I'm just guzzling it. All right? Seems weird, but stick with me. So then I close my eyes, have my noise-canceling headphones on, and I can usually fall asleep in, say, 10 minutes and one of the things that we know about napping is that the more you do it the better you get at it and that in that sense it's very much like meditation if you just take somebody off the street and say start meditating Mm. they're gonna have a really hard time but you bring them back day after day after day after day after day after day after day at a certain point they're gonna be able to meditate from 10 seconds to 30 seconds to a minute to a minute and a half so napping is that way so I can usually fall asleep in 10 minutes I fall asleep in 10 minutes my alarm goes off in 25 minutes that gives me 15 minute of actual nap Right in that sweet spot. But here's the cool thing. Caffeine takes about 25 minutes to get into our bloodstream. So at that moment that I'm waking up, okay, ideal nap, no sleep inertia, I get this other, boom, this boost of caffeine right there. And that's why it's called a nappuccino.
0: Oh, I love that
1: so much. It's awesome.
0: And, and... I mean, it really,
1: it, I mean it, it, really, it really works. What's interesting about that nappuccino is that I have gotten a lot of email about that from readers who particularly, two kinds of email. One, it allowed me to survive the military. Two, it allowed me to survive graduate school. Mm. I never knew it had a name. I thought I was the only one who did this.
0: That's so awesome. One of the things that's kind of cool about your book, one of the many things, I should say, and the book is called When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. Daniel Pink is our guest is that you have these little guides and that are after the chapters. I really like that. And, you know, you talk about find your your trough time. And you said the Mayo Clinic says the best time for a nap, and this is generally speaking, is between 2 and 3. Yeah. But if you want to be more s- precise, take a week to chart your afternoon yeah. mood and energy levels. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah. Well, it goes to something you were saying before, is that is that we need to be better observers of our own... Uh, being, in a sense. So, so our own body, uh, how, how is our body responding, our own mind, uh, both the way our kind of um, uh, traditional cognition is working, but also how we're feeling. Uh, and we don't do a very good job of that. We just we, we kind of neglect that. And our body is, and our minds and our brains are telling us things. And so if you pay attention to that and systematic about it, you will say, wait a second, at two o'clock in the afternoon, I am completely spaced out. So let's not have that important meeting at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Let's not schedule that phone call at 2 in the, two in the afternoon. You know what? At 2 in the afternoon, I'm going to close my door with my noise-canceling headphones and big cup of coffee. There certain things that you should do at nine in the morning, that you shouldn't do at two in the morning, and vice versa.
0: You also make a really interesting turn in the book about um, using about goal setting and using certain days as triggers. Oh yeah. And we're talking to you. It's January, so yeah. people have made their New Year's resolutions, and right. you're going to tell me that the research shows that uh, a bazillion percent, you know, sixty something percent of people are, they've already blown it. It's yeah. two weeks into the year, they've got. I, I know, I did. I was going to do a dryuary, you know, dry January. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. So whatever that. I had, I missed it by a glass and a half of wine so far. But <laughs> um, why is it, why is the turn of a calendar? Why is Rosh Hashanah for Jews important? Why are these days, why are they become important in, in terms of the timing of when you set goals?
1: Yeah. It, the, um, they're, they're enormously important for a whole set of reasons, because part of the science of timing is not only these daily patterns, but how do beginnings of any kind affect us? That's what we're talking about here. How do midpoints affect us? How do endings affect us? And there's some really, really beautiful, interesting research on what social psychologists call temporal landmarks. That's what you're talking about, temporal landmarks. And there's certain dates that stand out in time the way that physical landmarks stand out in space. So if I were directing somebody to my house in Washington, D.C., there's certain landmarks that I would tell them to look for to find my street. I'd have a, a smallish street. It's not one of the, but it's off of a really big street. And it's, anyway, it's, it's complicated because Washington has certain streets that are on diagonals and certain streets that are parallel and I'm on a diagonal and it's small and blah, blah, blah. So my view is like, look for Cactus Cantina Restaurant.
0: There you go. All right. Get and, a margarita and come over.
1: So they see Cactus Cantina Restaurant and they, what do they do? They start slowing down, right. becoming more aware. And that's what happens with these temporal landmarks. But they also do something else. They trigger this very peculiar form of mental accounting. So... Uh, What we do on certain of these dates is that we essentially open up a fresh ledger on ourselves. So think about ledgers in the old days when they're made of paper. They're not spreadsheets. They're not. Uh, Ah, young people listening,
0: go Google ledger so you can see what we're talking about. They're actually
1: kind of beautiful. I know. I love them. Beautiful in a way. I know. And and so, so what you're doing is you're opening up a fresh ledger on yourself, uh, the way that a a small business eighty years ago would open up a fresh ledger on a new quarter or a new year. And you basically say, "Old me." had a drink every day. New me, reborn on the first day of January, is going to be dry for the next 30 days. And so I think one of the interesting things about New Year's resolutions is that when you look at the numbers on New Year's resolutions, let's say, the, the numbers are all over the place, but let's say that by February, um, two-thirds of people are not keeping their New Year's resolutions. Mm-hmm. Let's just stipulate that that's the right thing. Okay. To me, it's like that's bearing the lead to me that says wait a second one-third of people are keeping their resolutions that's pretty amazing when you think about how hard it is to change our behavior and so what this means and this is some great research on what's called the fresh start effect done by uh, three researchers uh, at Penn Katie Milkman, Heng Chen Dai and uh, Jason Reese and what they found is that certain dates are fresh start dates. So we're more likely to start behavior change and therefore more likely to have a fighting chance of continuing it. So you're better off starting, uh, let's say, I'm finally going to go to the gym regularly. Start that on a Monday rather than on a Thursday. Start it on the first of the month rather than the 23rd of the month. Start it on the day after your birthday rather than four days before your birthday.
0: And you say there are 86 chances to have fresh starts? There are all
1: kinds of fresh starts. The first day at, Every Monday is, in some ways, a fresh start. Every first in the month is a fresh start. There are both um, personal and social uh, fresh start dates. So, so for so personal one would be like you know the day after my wedding anniversary, mm-hmm. right? So that would be July third. Not a meaningful date for most people, but a meaningful date for me. Um, the day after your birthday, the day after your kid was born, but also things that we share or things that small groups. So so the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, that's a fresh start date. And actually, if you look at what's interesting is that is that the way that certain religious traditions welcome in the New Year, it has all of the trappings of, fresh start, right? We announce it. We have, you we, we know, there's, there's some talk sort of at least tangentially about a clean slate and starting over. The first of the month, there's the first day after, first day after spring. For students, the first day of a semester. Um, so whatever, so there's certain, in our religious traditions, there's there are fresh start dates. In our schools, there're fresh start dates. In our personal lives and just on our regular cal- shared calendar.
0: I love the idea. Um, I also am very... I was very intrigued here um, when you're talking about beginnings. um, One of the things that you cite is a study that I always talk about, which is you can be lucky or unlucky as to when you
1: graduate college. Oh, my gosh. This is amazing.
0: And the reason why I love this is that I do feel like many of my peers uh, are kind of judgmental around the millennial generation. I said, you know what? These kids are screwed because of when they just happen to hatch into the working world and it's really is hard for them and i always pull out this that research which says when you graduate and there is a recession your lifetime earnings are reduced
1: yes and it's, and it's significant it's extraordinary. This, this really blew me away. It's, so it's another example of, okay, how do beginnings affect us? And this is the work of Lisa Kahn, who's an economist at Yale. Um, some very powerful evidence showing that if, that if you take, you know, exactly as you say, if you take one person who graduates from college in a boom time and another person graduates in a recession, um, 20 years later, that's still going to show up in their wages.
0: Which is mind-blowing.
1: It is mind blowing and it's unfair. I mean as a father of two college students, it's like, whoa, hey guys, like graduate in a good time if you can if you can if you can swing it. Um and it's it's unfair and we need to do things when people get off to false starts.
0: And with the if I may quote you, uh, beginnings exert a powerful but invisible influence on people's livelihoods. It also I don't know if you found this and I'm not sure you talked about it in the book, but what I have found also is that it really can be I'm, and, and obviously, the recession we went through ten years ago is yeah. the Great Recession. It was horrible. Yeah. It also seems to shake the confidence of these people, these young people, so that they're unwilling to take a certain kind of risk in their careers because they feel like, oh crap, I don't want to give up what I have, and so it, it kind of tethers them to jobs that they don't even like in yeah, some and respects. and that's actually
1: a really bad deci- that's a really bad decision because the mechanism at work in this, basically, this wage punishment, salary punishment for graduating in a recession is is basically this. That early in our working lives, we are trying to look for the match between our skills and what employers need. And we very rarely get that right, correct, right out of the box. And so what happens is you go to one place, it's "Ah, it's not quite the right match, then you try to go to another place. Switching jobs actually is a good way to increase your salary. Mm -hmm. And so the early part of your career can be a series of job switches where you're finding the right match between your talents and the labor market's need and your salary is increasing. When the unemployment rate is high, you can't move. That's the thing. And so you might be in a job where there's a bad match and okay, I got to get out of here, find a better match. There's no give in the market. And so you can't move. So you're stuck there. And then if you're and then it, 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 what you're talking about is compounding that. So when the labor market loosens up, you say, "Oh, wait a second. Even though this is a bad match, I can't move because it's too perilous. And my 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 advice is move. Yeah. Get that match. Get that salary increase thing going because that's how you're going to find a job that's right for you, and you're going to get your wages and salaries up.
0: All right. Now let me just show you something I marked up in your book. Yes. Do you <laughs> see that? Do you see that midlife thing? Yes. Do you see where I what I circled there? Do you see what my age is? I'm right smack in the bottom fifty three age 53 well-being slumps in midlife uh, wah, wah I
1: am 54 so I so feel you, your pain
0: we are there um, what is up with
1: this this is some really really interesting research uh, based on two dimensions first we talk about this idea of a midlife crisis that's complete bunk there is no evidence of a midlife crisis it's one of it drives me nuts that people actually even use that term because there's zero evidence of that but something else I think more interesting happens in midlife and is, is basically what, they, what researchers call a U-shaped curve of well-being. It's not a crisis. It doesn't, the bottom doesn't fall out, but there's a dip, and the dip is around, <laughs> in general, around our age. And the chart you're pointing to is a chart from uh, Angus Deaton, who's a Nobel Prize-winning economist at Princeton. But the, the, the U-shaped curve of well-being that, that he and his team found – Is similar to what researchers around the world have found this is not an American phenomenon this is a international phenomenon this u-shaped curve of well-being in midlife that is we're happier in our 20s and 30s we'd be into dip in our 40s really you know hit the 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 bottom of that gentle U in our 50s and then generally start going back up has been found in something like 70 countries Mm. if I were to show you that chart And then say, if I were to show you that chart and not identify it, and then show you the chart of well-being over the lifespan in France, and then say, here's the well-being over the lifespan in uh, United Arab Emirates, you would not be able to tell the difference Hmm. among those.
0: Interesting. So, I mean, you you attribute this one possibility: the disappointment of unrealized expectations. So I would just say that, look, when I looked at this chart, I was fascinated by it because, first of all, there's a huge drop down Uh um, as you get to be sort of like in your 20s. And I think that a lot of kids in their 20s are like, I should be at the top of the world. Why don't I feel better? So I feel like it's like a nice explanation for like you don't have to feel so good because you're learning a lot. But you know what? After going through two divorces, (laughs) I can tell you that like my well-being shifted because of those the experiences early on sure I'm wondering what your advice might be to navigate some if someone is sort of feeling that unrealized expectation or just feeling like you know my kids are out of school out of my house I've, I've lost my purpose maybe yeah. you were the stay-at-home parent yeah. or whatever what is the advice for getting through the trough?
1: It's a great it's a great question. And, and as you say, we're talking about large population samples. So people, not everybody. This is not like, um, um, oh, there's a, a cold front is meeting a warm front. Therefore, inevitably, it's going to rain. This is, you know, large populations and general patterns, and everybody doesn't abide by it. But I think there are a few things that, 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 that people can do is, and, and we don't know the reason why, actually. We can speculate about that, but we don't know exactly the reason why. I think one thing to do, there are all kinds of things that we can do. One of them is... Um, gratitude. Uh, there is enormous, as you know, there's enormous research on gratitude. And so what you, can do, what you can do is you can say, well, you know, okay, I'm not the CEO, but what am I grateful for? Oh, I have a happy marriage oh or I have these great friends or I'm in perfect physical health or poo poo
0: well, poo you would never say that out loud what, if you were Jewish whatever. And I challenge the gods if, to get what, you
1: but but you know it's like what am, what, am, what am I what am I what am I what am I grateful for there's there's actually this really really interesting technique built on a lot of research which I which I really like it's it's an interesting mental exercise called mental subtraction of positive events and so what you do is you think about your life something good that happened to you and then you pretend it didn't happen
0: Oh, this is like uh, uh, the that Christmas it's movie. It's a wonderful, but it's life. A wonderful life, right? Totally, yeah.
1: totally. Um, that's a very important movie psychologically. So, anyway, leave that aside for now. The. Uh, so you mentally subtract a positive event. So let's say, I don't know, what's a positive event in the first 35 years of your life?
0: Whatever, like, uh, you know, that like I, I, I had a job, I had success, I had okay, yeah. nieces and nephews, whatever.
1: Okay. Wh- okay, so let's say you had a you, you know, what what you had a, you know, whatever your first great job in journalism was. Right. Imagine if that didn't happen. Right. You would not be might not be here sitting with me, I'm, and that would, be a, that would be a deep, deep disappointment. I'm
0: already disappointed considering that it could have happened that way. It's well, horrifying. But I think,
1: about, you know, I, I think about it. You know, I, I, mean, I, got, I got three kids. It's like, geez, like what if, like, one of my kids wasn't born? Oy. I know. It's like, okay, suddenly every niggling little irritation goes away.
0: So I do it differently. And you also
1: can wait. Here's the other thing is that, you know, if you're, if you're at the bottom of this, If you're at the bottom of this U-shaped curve of well-being, you know, some people, people who are the the glass half full type will Mm -hmm. say, hey, you got nothing but up. That's right. I got my upside. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, so I think that I look at it as when I'm starting to get wrapped up in something. Like somebody, you know, said something about the, you know, whatever, changes going on at work. And and, uh, I looked at him and he was like all down and out. And he's like so depressed. I'm like, dude, you get paid to be on TV that's like kind of the greatest thing ever absolutely and I said I get paid and they do my hair and makeup perfect I mean really
1: I, I don't want to be Pollyanna ish about let's this. come on When we when, when we think about this and this is a challenge in the workplace I think is that when you um, you you have a lot of people who are in that period where they're less slightly less happy with their lives less happy people in general are not as productive don't do as, as great mm-hmm. work and I I've always thought that one thing that we could be doing inside of organizations is mid-career mentoring. We do mentoring for people in their 20s. Why not do mentoring for people our age? Because you know, it's like, okay, hey, you're 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 a great contributor. You're not going to be CEO, but you're 53 years old and I don't know, you might have 30 good working years in you, 30 years, 35 years of great contribution. Is like, let's help you find that path.
0: Mentoring is such a great two-way street
1: Yeah. that when I
0: help someone out who's younger, I always find that I learn something either about myself or about that person or it's so, it feels quite nourishing. And I think that that's a wonderful thing. As we get older, speaking about beginning, middle, and end, Yeah there is a great deal of evidence that we tend to be happier but then I was reading your book and thinking about all that other strain of research which is older people are isolated and lonely and that so bring that together for me
1: well I mean I actually think that that the preponderance of evidence is that old age older age is a much happier time than we realize uh, for, for a couple of reasons, uh, and there's some great work done on this by Laura Carsonson at Stanford, uh, and she looked at uh, friendship networks, and what we typically see in the size of people, forget not not, not like Facebook, but like real friends. Right? Yeah. So if you look at the size of friendship networks, um, they, they grow. In the 20s, 30s, they grow. 40s, 50s, they grow. But around age 60, they start to drop and sometimes significantly. And she was puzzled by that because that is superficially the story of isolation and despair and loneliness. And what she instead did is she, she unpacked that and she had the people, uh, as she examined their friendship network, she said, okay, divide people into groups. Inner circle, middle circle, outer circle. Inner circle, people you can't live without. Next circle out, people you really like. Next circle out, yeah, they're cool too. And what she found is that all of the decline was in the middle and outer circles. Mm. That and then in some instances, that inner circle actually grew a little bit because at the end, you know, toward the end, if you're like say in, you know, I'm in the final third of this book here, um, I got to get rid of some of these characters because they're boring me, they're not doing anything for me, and you're more you're more willing to shed their you're more willing to shed those friends because you focus on these things, and 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 what we know is that intimate social connections is one of the things that makes us most satisfied. There's a you know there's a famous grant study uh from Harvard where they they had the, it's all men It's all white men where they they followed these men for decades and decades and decades from the time they were undergraduates they did another one of some working yeah. class people in Boston and as you follow them through it basically like who's happy and who's not and Robert Waldinger the the Harvard guy who's running this program now says you know it's basically happiness is love full stop that's it. You have people who you 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 have people who you care about you have people who care about you boom that's it that's it it ain't money oh it's not money it's not even money is good all right and professional accomplishment is good and making a contribution to the world is good but at the center of it all is do you have people you love and do you have people who love you
0: and that is a good way to end this interview (laughs) Because I'll tell you something, that is, that is it's true. That, it's, that's really what... It's
1: empirically true. It, this is not like, I'm not preaching, you know, I'm not like, I don't have a philosophy about this. I'm basically, like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm I, you know, you look at the evidence and the evidence tells us that's what it's all about.
0: I love that. Before we let you go, remember I started the show, I said, what was your best financial decision? You said marrying your wife. Yeah. What was your worst?
1: My Worst financial decision. I think my worst financial decision might have been... It's weird, okay. I think one of my worst financial decisions might have been going to law school because I I I gathered a huge amount of debt going to law school, Mm. Um, and it took me a while to get 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 rid of that. On the other hand, I I met my wife in law school, so it can sort of cancel that that out.
0: All right, that seems good enough, though. Don't go to law school if unless you want to be a lawyer is also a good thing. Like a lot of people used to go to law school just like I think I'm going to learn how to
1: learn. Like what? I am so with you on that. (laughs) I have been telling people that ever since I graduated from law school, and no one ever freaking listens to me. It's the
0: dumbest thing. Like, like, oh, you you can do do anything.
1: No, you can't. Oh, you can do anything without doing it.
0: And, And you don't have to spend all the money.
1: Totally, I know.
0: I'm like, it's funny. Did you go to law school? I did not. Okay. I, in fact, when I met my girlfriend, she literally said to me, "You're the only person." Is she a lawyer? uh, Yes, and she loved law school, and she wanted to be a lawyer. Cool, that's good. Which is great. But when, but she always would tease me. She's like, "You know, you're the only person I know who doesn't have a graduate degree," which is true. She goes, "But you are actually the happiest person in your career that I know." Because, I mean, I just bounced around and did what I said yes. That was my thing. Say yes a That's lot. That's an
1: interesting point, too, because I, I've been thinking a lot about that. It's sort of in the course of your life, I think there are moments when you say yes. And then I think at a certain point in your life, there are moments when you actually start saying no to everything. Yeah. That's an inter- there's an interesting juncture there. But one of the things that I tell my kids is if somebody at a workplace or anything asks you, can you do that? I can do that. Absolutely. I don't care if you can do it or not. Yeah. I can do that. Yeah. And just raise your hand. And do it. Raise your hand and say, I can do that, whether you feel like you can do it or not.
0: Daniel H. Pink, he is the author of When? The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. We'll have a link to the book so you can buy it wherever you'd like. And I thank you so much for joining us. This was fantastic. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun, John. It was great. Thanks so much to Daniel Pink for coming on the program. Remember, we drop new episodes of Jill on Money every Tuesday and Thursday. If you've got a financial question, an investment question, tax question, that season's opening up soon, just send us an email. Askjill at jillonmoney.com. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Telercio is our executive producer. We're distributed by Cadence 13. See you next week.